So um, I have this habit, you know, um, me, I love the book of Proverbs, and there's always a chapter that's equivalent to the day's date. Today's the 14th. Um, I, I, I looked as Lisa said, Happy Valentine's Day. I looked for faces of terror in case any of the men forgot, and I didn't see any. I'm glad, I'm glad you were all on top of it. But today, uh, from chapter 14, I picked part of uh, verse 9. And I believe this is something, this is, I just want to read the scripture to you, which is my habit. But don't just blow past this moment because I think the Lord wants to deposit this truth down in your soul. It's short. Among the upright, there is favor. That's God's favor. That's the favor of people around you. That just happens upon the upright. Upright doesn't mean perfect. It just means in right standing with God. Yeah, so, so today is the third and final part of a series, brief series that I'm doing talking about the times when God just doesn't make sense which I think for most of us happens quite a lot. We see things we don't understand. And last week we looked at um, when God was late, and we looked at the story of Lazarus. And, um, and, and today we're going to actually look at something. I think the topic is actually a little bit more difficult, more challenging for us, even though last week we watched Lazarus die. Um, and, is, and, and, and they waited and waited and waited. But eventually... What Mary and Martha were asking of God, he came through. Not just did he answer their prayer, but he way, way, way exceeded it. And it was really good news. So he actually did, even though he was late, he actually did the thing, and it was really good. Today I want to look at when God seems uncooperative. We know God could do something, and we believe he will, but it hasn't happened yet, and maybe it won't. And we want to understand when that happens a little bit better. You know, what's, what's going on? Explain to me. I need to understand the ways and the will of God and, and to learn to depend on him on, in those times when, when, when he just seems uncooperative. Years and years ago, Lisa and I were um, with some friends who happened to be sitting in this room today, and might, they might remember the story. Um, but this is a long time ago. We um, had only been married a few years, and we decided for Christmas we were going to get our Christmas tree out of the forest. And I think you can still do this. I don't know if you can, but at the time, I don't know if you can still do this anymore, but at the time you could go to um, the Forest Service office in certain places and they would, you know, for $3 or $5, issue you a Christmas tree permit and you could go up into the National Forest and cut down your own Christmas tree. By the time you got it home, your tree cost you $3,000, but you had done that thing, you know, where you went out with. So we... We went out, and I think we had this other couple with us. This is a long time ago. Um, I'm sure we did. And um, we were driving my 1970 Impala, <laughs> a big old boat that has as much steel in it as any two cars today. But anyway, it's a great big old car. And um, we were way up there. First, you went to the Forest Service office, got your permit, and then you headed up. And, and where we left um, the highway along the Hood Canal um, and headed west up into the forest, it was quite a ways. And I remember that day um, thinking, we don't have very much gas, but we'll be okay. I think we had like a quarter tank of gas. And, and a quarter tank of gas to this young couple was like, like an investment in a 401k. I mean, that was where all of our resources, the gas was expensive, it was like a dollar a gallon. <laughs> Something like that. Um, but I mean, it was, we didn't have money. In fact, when we would call up our friends and say, hey, let's go, do, let's go here and do this next Saturday. It would be always, we'd always say, well, who's driving? And we'd take turns because the cost of gas was a lot for us. Anyway, so we had about a quarter tank of gas, and that was like having a full tank of gas as far as we were concerned. We were, we were like in the tall cotton. And so um, we, uh, we got a quarter tank of gas, headed up to Quillacine, went and got our permit, headed, headed into the woods. This is wintertime, remember? Christmas time, snow on the woods. So up we go. I don't mind that. I'd been up in the woods a lot, you know, with my pals, and, and it's snowing on the road. And I think we were probably about a half an hour off of the main highway, up into the forest. 
because that tree is not good enough, and that tree is not good enough, and that tree is not good enough, and that one, and that one, and that one. <laughs> yeah, they're not good enough. So we're, did I just, anyway, so we're, we're, we're way up there. Oh, the perfect tree. We're in this Clark Griswold moment, and, <laughs> and so we pulled over, let's go cut the tree down, and we got out of the car, and I remember getting out of the car, the smell of gas, which wasn't that unusual if you car guys know a 1970s the technology then was you know it wasn't unusual to have gas coming out of your carburetors you smell those kinds of things and so we smelled gas we didn't really think anything about it so we got up in the woods took our tools got up there cut down the tree and drug it back down to the road and i think that whole process probably took 15 or 20 minutes still smell the gas in fact it seemed pretty strong so we tied the tree on, still strong. I, I thought, I'm going to find out what that is, you know. And I got down on the ground, and I looked underneath the car. In the back was where the gas tank was. And something had happened on the way up the mountain. And there was this stream of gas, about the thickness of a pencil. Coming, <laughs> and the, it was just all over, and I'm thinking, <laughs> it's not good. And um, get in the car. Get in the car. We are heading down the mountain, and you thought we were driving too fast coming. We are going down this mountain. And so, but let's pray. God, we need a miracle here because we're going to freeze to death. We are way up. This gas, it's, the needle was already there. We're in trouble. And we got a half an hour of unsafe, fast driving to get to the highway. <laughs> they might not find us till spring, you know. And so we prayed, Lord. Do something about this. Get us down. And so off we go. And we go racing down the mountain. And I remember getting to, we made it somehow miraculous. I really believe. So we, we made it to the highway. Turned on the highway and wasn't very far. We came to this little convenience store on the other side. Pulled off there. Ran in. Do you have any soap? Yes. Buy a bar of soap. Ran out there. Got on the ground. Rubbed on the hole. Plugged the hole. I'm still, I am still tense right now just remembering these moments. <laughs> and that gas tank, somehow, we, we ran. I don't know. It was God. I am absolutely convinced to this day that the Lord preserved us and made that car go without gas. Now, I wish I could tell you that ever since then, I've never had to pull into a gas station again. <laughs> I just pray and my gas tank fills. I'm not telling you, but I am telling you, I'm absolutely convinced that the Lord intervened in a very simple, practical way for two couples who were up in the woods and maybe a little um, out of their depth. Now, I want to tell you another story. Um, The last couple of weeks, I've shared with you a story about a close friend of our family who we love dearly, who grew up with my children, vacationed with us, And just a few weeks ago, she's pregnant for the first time in her life. And a few weeks ago, the doctors gave her the terrible news that she has mesothelioma. And this is a a very difficult, and it's it's bad news. It's as bad as bad news can be. Now, I tell you these two stories. We've been praying. Our family's been praying. Many friends are praying, 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 praying. Lots of people praying. And I look at these two things, and... um, Here's my point for telling you these two stories. I, I think about this kind of stuff, and I, I look at God, and I say, God, why in the world would you do something admittedly miraculous and so insignificant in comparison as keep gas in my empty tank 
but not immediately heal. This daughter of yours and her unborn child, I just don't get it. I, and I, you know, I think they got the whole life ahead of God, this does not make sense. So I'm smiling right now because I got trust, but it doesn't make sense to me. This is where I am at today. And I look at these things in my life and I think, you know, I've seen the Lord do a lot of things and I've seen a lot of miracles. I have. I've seen them happen. This one doesn't make sense to me and maybe I'm just being impatient. And I know probably that every one of you, or at least most of you, but I think probably every one of us has some version of this kind of a story in your life where, you know, the Lord has given you the front parking spot at the mall during Christmas and it was miraculous but your migraine headaches go on and on and on. Or you're praying for your marriage and there, or some ongoing issue and it's just some challenge. You know, you need a job. And, and whatever it is, you know, all of us have something like that going on in our lives. God, I believe you can do this. I know you can do this. And I know you will. Yet somehow God hasn't done it. What do you do when God seems like he's just not cooperating? When it seems that way. I mean, you're a sincere follower of God. You're, you believe that he could answer your prayer, but he hasn't answered your prayer. Today I want to look at the uh, life of the Apostle Paul. And uh, I'm gonna have, I have three thoughts for you about prayer that I hope will minister to you and give you some hope. First one is this, is that we need to recognize that true prayer isn't about getting our way. It's often about surrendering our will. It's not just getting God to do what we want. It's often surrendering our will to what God actually wants. And I think, you know, I I'm, I'm, may get some pushback from some people on this, but this is exactly how Jesus prayed. You know, he was, he was in the garden. He knew he was going on to the cross. He knew what he faced. And he said, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass away, would you just remove it? Nevertheless, not my will, God, but yours. Be done. He also taught us to pray. He said, you know, in, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in him. He, Jesus prayed this way. True prayer isn't just about getting God to do what we want, but sometimes it's, and it's often, about surrendering our will to what God wants. And in case you didn't grow up in the church and you don't know who this Apostle Paul is, we're going to be in the scriptures in a minute. Let me give you a little background on this guy. He, he, you know, if, if there was anybody who deserved to have answered personal prayer, it was this guy. Okay, he, 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 in my mind, he really earned it. Um, I mean, but before he was following God, he absolutely hated Christians. I mean, he hated them. He hunted them down and killed them. So he was like a hitman, you know, and he just, he, he has this miraculous conversion and his heart gets changed and he goes from hating Christians to becoming one of the most effective Christians in, in human history. Um, he wrote over half of the New Testament uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. He traveled um, afterwards for about 20 years um, to everywhere that he could physically get to, just about all over the world. He went to Europe and Asia, and he was all over the place sharing um, the gospel. And he was uh, amazingly bold with, with his faith. I mean, he, he had visions. He, he raised from the dead somebody. I mean, um, and, he, and, and, and to do all that, he personally paid a terrible price. I mean, I mean he was stoned for his faith. I mean, that's a bad deal. Um, there was, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but there was some, some talk of some stoning 
happening in Iraq and Iran recently, and they buried the person up to their, their neck, and nothing sticking above the ground but their head. And you know, It's terrible. He was stoned. And um, he was shipwrecked. He was snake-bitten. He was beaten with rods. He was, he was uh, whipped. He was flogged. And, and, when, and one of the times he was beaten, he was left for dead. This guy's dead. Let's leave him alone. But he didn't die then. And, and he was actually flogged formally five times, five different times he had a sentence of, of being lashed. Now, um, just so that you understand, that's the last thing that I mentioned on the list. It's not the least of them. Here's the deal about flogging at the time of, of Christ. I mean, you, you would be sentenced to flogging. The typical sentence was, was 40 lashes, 40. But they would not do 40 lashes. They would do 39. And there's two reasons that they would do 39. The primary reason was because it was merciful. You could get one more. It was also merciful because it wasn't the death sentence. But they really believed that whipping somebody with 39 lashes was merciful. It was a, it was a terrible deal. And in fact, um, the second reason was because they didn't want to make a mistake and do 41. That would be an offense against their God, against God, and it was a pretty big deal. And so, so it wasn't actually, you know, the, the sentence wasn't always necessarily 40. They would sometimes examine the person and say, you know, 40 will kill this person. This is not an execution. This is just supposed to be punishment. So they would, they would maybe sometimes adjust accordingly. So it wasn't always 40 lashes. Sometimes it was less. And, and what they would do was determined that we want this to hurt, but we don't want to kill the person so that they would be less. Sometimes people would be um, allowed to get strong enough before they would get the I mean, there was all kinds of things. That there, there was all these technicalities. And, um, and then they would go about the process, and the person would be stripped bare down to their waist. And in many cases, one-third of the lashes would be across the, the, the breast, across the chest. And then the two-thirds would be on the back. I don't know how they recovered. It just, uh, this terrible thing. And as I was studying this, I discovered this, this interesting little anecdote. Um, there, in most cases, the flogging was the sentence. But there was one instance when it was flogging plus a fine. In other words, for some reason, this was called out by God as something that needed extra. And here's what it was. It was the slander of a virgin. It's what guys do in locker rooms. Hey, she's easy. Right? I mean, it's the slander of a virgin. Of a virgin. And I studied that out and I thought, okay, I'm on, a, I'm, a, I'm on a rabbit trail on my rabbit trail, okay? This is not the sermon. I've gone on a rabbit trail. Now I'm in there and I'm going on a rabbit trail on a rabbit trail. And here's why the slander of the virgin is such a big deal to God. This is his daughter. You're making evil words about God's daughter, his pure daughter, and you're destroying her testimony. Don't do that. Don't mess with my little girl. And boy, as a dad, I get that. <laughs> I really get that. Anyway, so I'll make it back on the original rabbit trail, um, the flogging one. I mean, I'm getting mad just thinking about that. Um, I mean, and the thing is, I'm pretty sure at some point I did that. I'm pretty sure at some point I was in that locker room talk thing, bravado, trying to make the other guys think I was some, some manner of special guy because of my conquest. Guys do that. Don't do it. Guys, do not do that. And listen, you parents, raise your sons and your daughters 
not to do that. Just anyway. Okay, back off of that one. So, so um, and here's the deal about the flogging. The guy doing the flogging, if he was careful to observe all of the requirements, he did it correctly, and the person died, the flogger is innocent of murder. But if he wasn't really careful, if he hadn't paid attention to all of the law, and he flogged the person, and the person died, now he's trouble. His only chance was to run to a city of refuge, wait till the, the high priest died, da, 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 and he might be spared. Anyway, so they've got all these crazy rules. Five different times the Apostle Paul, we're now back off of that rabbit trail, come on with me. Um, five different times the Apostle Paul, he's, he's whipped, 39 lashes, he's put in prison over and over again. He, he just, this guy endured for Christ more than you and I could really even imagine. And um, what's his reward? He pays this terrible price, I think this guy deserved to have his prayers answered. That's my, that's my, what are my opinions worth, God? <laughs> I, mean, I, th- I mean, don't you think he's kind of earned it? Come on, come with me on this. I mean, by the math we do. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12, <laughs> verse 7. Um, here we go. It's a pretty challenging part of scripture for me because of what I just told you. Therefore, in order to keep me, this is the Apostle Paul talking, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Some, some um, translations say that, that Satan used to buffet me. So, so there's a thorn in his flesh. It's a very challenging text. Satan brings some sort of trouble into Paul's life, and God allows it. I'm sure Paul's talking about it to God. Come on, God, could you do that? And, 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 and God not only allows it, but God uses it. He makes, he doesn't probably like it, God doesn't, but, he, but, he, but he uses it to keep him from becoming conceited. And, and so Paul's got this thorn. Now, what was the thorn? I don't know. We don't know. It's not explained in here. I think that's sovereign. And, and, and people, you know, scholars have been debating about it for years. Everybody's got their ideas. Some people, some people think his thorn was other people who came in opposition to him. But most scholars think that it was something physical, some sort of a, you know, headaches or malaria or um, epilepsy of speech impediments. And many think that he had problems with his eyesight because some of his, the later scriptures that he wrote, the letters were much bigger and it was like his eyesight. I mean, there was, there's all kinds of explanations. Um, and, and we don't know. Whatever it was, we don't know. We don't know. But he says, this was given to me and God allowed it. It tormented me, he says. But God used it to keep me from becoming conceited. And I think today, many of you right this moment may have some thorn in your life. Some issue. You know, some challenge. And, you know, you might, for example, think, you know, my thorn is this person and, you know, if you're next to them, don't nudge them right now, okay? <laughs> or, you know, it might be some health issue and, and you've prayed and you've believed that God can and will heal you, but it hasn't gone away. For some, maybe a thorn is some level of depression. And you've prayed and, and you've tried all kinds of different things and, and um, you're still fighting this depression. Or maybe for some, it's some kind of a sleep issue. And you just can't get rest. And when you can't get rest, it just cascades into all other kinds of areas of your life. Or maybe, maybe for you it's just some practical issue. 
that's just dogs you. Like, you know, God, I just need a car so I can get to church and I can get to work. I just, this is practical. I can never get out of this hole. Whatever it is, you, 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 you know, say, God, would you just please change this circumstance in my life? But God isn't changing. We need to remember that, that prayer isn't just about getting our way, but many times it's about surrendering our will and saying, you know, God, even though I wish you would do this, and I know you could, you're not. I, I'm going to choose to trust you. And it, right through the middle of the situation. Okay, the number two thing, second thing is this, that prayer reminds us that we're not in control, and it keeps us close to the one who is. Prayer reminds us that we're not in control, but it keeps us close to the one who is. Prayer reminds us that, hey, I'm not the God of my own life. <laughs> and um, I'm just thinking of things I've heard from little kids <laughs> say to me, you know, you're not the boss of me. You know? <laughs> well, I, as it happens, the matter of happens, right now I am, honey. But <laughs> It's possible I could have called one of my boys honey, but not likely. <laughs> Yeah. Don't you remember that standing on top of the washing machine? You're not the boss? Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> you know, it just reminds me that I can't control every situation. If you don't know, that's my daughter, Rachel. Um, it reminds me that it's not in control, but it keeps me close to the one who is. And this thorn actually did this. It accomplished this for the Apostle Paul. In verse 8, he goes on and says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. God, three different times. I, I'm begging you, please, take this away. Now, when he says three times, I don't want you to get the impression that he said, you know, he, he said it once at breakfast, and then he said it again at lunch, and then he said it again at dinner. That's not what this, this, the wording here suggests. This, this was three significant seasons of, of intentional, focused, intercessional prayer. Three different seasons he's gone through. Who knows how long the seasons were? I mean, maybe you've done that about an issue before. Lisa and I have, um, and um, I can tell you, uh, I'll give you an example of one. We, we knew this couple who, we, um, who, who wanted a child, and they could not get pregnant, hadn't been able to at, the, at this point. And, and we decided between the two of us that it was appropriate for us to spend a season praying about this. And so we prayed regularly, prayed regularly, prayed regularly. I mean, this was a, a significant period of time. In fact, one time, Lisa and I got up at 5 in the morning, drove to their house, sat outside. We went early because we didn't want to be caught. And, you know, and sat and prayed for them to have a baby outside their house. I mean, a significant season. Paul has prayed for three times he spent these seasons, these emphasis, these, these efforts, pleading, praying, God, please take away this thorn. And some of you might be in a season like that right now. You know, God, I have been praying for my parents' marriage for so long. God, I, I just need you here. Or take away this pain. Or, you know, God, I need a job. And I really need a job with benefits. I've got a family. Whatever it is you're begging, you're pleading, you're praying. And that's exactly what, what, what God's, what Paul is doing here. He's, he's saying, God, I, I trust you. I believe in you. Please take this away. And by the way, God, I'm only asking you to do what I've seen you do for other people. Now, if I'm God, I do the spiritual math here, and I'm thinking, Paul, you got it. 
You've earned this. In fact, not only am I going to give you this, but I'm going to give you a 10% raise, you know, whatever it is. I mean, that's, that's what I'm thinking. And when you think about this, you know, God had already answered so many prayers that Paul had seen. I mean, he had used Paul. Um, he'd, he'd, he'd done miracles through Paul. And again and again, I mean, and, and, and Paul's got to be thinking, of course God can do this. He raised this guy from the... I mean, he's done all these things, and he begs, and he begs, and what happens? Let's keep reading verse 12, first, first part of verse 9, excuse me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God, would you just do this one thing? I could serve you so much more effectively if you would just do this one thing. And God says, No, not on this one. My grace is going to be enough for you, Paul. My grace. And I know when I read that, I think, you know, especially the first time, what, what does that even mean? Grace. Your grace is going to be sufficient. I mean, isn't grace what helps us get our sins forgiven? I mean, we're saved by grace. You know, grace, yeah, but, but, but grace is so much more than just that. It is so much more. The Greek word, um, charis, means undeserved favor, grace. But it actually means, the, the, the meaning goes way deeper than that. There was, as I was studying that word out, there was one scholar, and this is kind of like how it happens on the internet where you read all these, I do some of my research in books, some of my computer, and some out on the internet, right? And there's all these things, and sometimes you'll see a statement like this, and it'll be repeated so many places. I have no idea who to credit for this, okay? But there's this one, one statement, and it said like this, God freely, this is a definition of, of, of how God demonstrates his grace to us. God freely extends himself leaning and reaching to us because he's disposed to bless and be near to us. I mean, um, I'm going to read that one more time. It means a lot to me. I hope it gets in there. God freely extends himself, leaning and reaching to us because he's disposed. He's disposed. It's his nature and desire to be near us and to bless us. It's this... Leaning, what is grace? It's this leaning in of God. It's, it's him saying, I'm here for you. It's this leaning and reaching in. I mean, revealing. It's God leaning in and with his presence. And here's, here's, here's what happens. We tend to say this. God, this is what I need. This is what I want, God. I mean, if you'll do this, that's what I need. This is what, this is what I want, God. And God sometimes will look back and say, no. You know, that's not what you need. In this case, I am what you need. I am enough. I'm sufficient. My grace in this situation is what you need. I'm what you need. It's this leaning in, loving presence of God. You know, I could do that. I, I've done it before. And I may do something similar to that later. But for now, no, because what you need for now is my presence. And by the way, you're going to experience me through this in a way that you wouldn't be able to experience me, loving child, if I was to do for you what you're asking. Wow. Sounds good, Lord. It hurts, but I'm just going to have to ramp up some trust here, and I'm willing. That's hard. This, this leaning in, reaching presence of God, it's something that's you know, really, really hard for us to understand until you've actually come through the other side of this. You know, 
and maybe you've had these conversations. How are you making it through this? I, I don't know. I've, I've just got this special grace from God. How can you have peace in this terrible, with this terrible news and, and with what's going on? I, I can't explain it except that I just know I have God with me and I'm, I'm really okay. It's the presence of God that, that at that moment is more than enough. My grace is sufficient for you. And I, I have an example of this in my, own, in my own life that I can share with you. I've talked about this topic before um, and admittedly this is going to be weak to, 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 pry, to try to demonstrate what this grace shows up because I'm this human being, so it's going to be weak. But this is a story back in my family when Rachel was age six. And uh, she, had, um, she had started having these seizures, and I've told the story before, and um, we didn't understand what it was, and it scared us, and it scared her. And you know, so, of course, we went to the doctors, and they started saying some pretty scary things to us. Um, you know, well, first, before we can figure this out, we've got to do a lot of tests. And, of course, with the tests, they want to go after the scariest stuff first, which is <laughs> so hard. And um, it's good, I guess, to take those things off the list, but the first thing they wanted to do, or one of the first things they wanted to do was to um, do an MRI to look at her brain for tumors. But before they could get there, um, that was... At that time, I think there was one MRI machine in the state of Washington, and it was in Bellevue. Of course. Why, why, would it, why wouldn't it be in Bellevue? Anyway, so... <laughs> that was. I mean, it was in Bellevue. And so um, we couldn't get in... I mean, the appointments, one in the state, it was new technology, a very expensive process. We were group health at the time, and it ran up the food chain, and they said, yes, we're paying for this. Send the little girl up. So they sent us to this pediatric neurologist, and, and he had to schedule and get us in there, and they were anxious to do it quickly. So what they did at first, you know, I mean, okay, so to a little girl, a six-year-old, whom her daddy protects, is this big, scary machine. Nobody's in there. Got to go by myself. You know, and um, we'll come back to that. Before they could get to that, they did some other tests. You know, they hook up the wires, read the brain waves, and so they're trying to figure out what's causing these seizures. Is it epilepsy? Is it something else? And uh, one of the tests that they were doing, they had her all hooked up, and they were, you know, just reading, reading her brain waves. And uh, one of the things they wanted to do was stick this light above her and flash it. It was a strobe. Because for some people, in some cases of epilepsy, um, a strobe will trigger. And that would tell them something about what's going on in certain parts of the brain. And um, I remember being in the room with Rachel, and, and they were, had been doing all these tests. Doing, okay, we got one more thing to do, and they stick this light. I mean, it's right over her face. And they turn the lights down in the room, and they turn this thing on, and it's going, boom, 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 boom. You know, it's like a science fiction horror movie. It was scary. And she started crying. She didn't go into a seizure. She started crying. And, I, and, I, and she looked at me. You know, why are you making me do this? I said to the doctor, stop! Here's an example of my loving daughter saying, Daddy, make it stop. And I thought, stop! But we're not, stop! We're not done, stop! Off came the light. Now there's an example of when... My little one asked for something, and it was absolutely, yes, I'm going to give you what you asked for. They were kind of ticked off with me. We, we got enough information. I said, okay, well, 
We're not doing that one again, right? Right, right, right. We're not doing that one again. Because she didn't have any seeds. I mean, I won't get into the argument again, but it made me angry that when my... Anyway, <laughs> that's why they don't let parents go in, right? <laughs> so after the MRI, we go. Now, we've got a six-year-old girl who has to go into this big machine. It's scary. They're going to put her on our table, slide her in. She's got to go inside the machine. They may have changed now. I haven't been to one for a very, very long time. And then they had to restrain her so she wouldn't move. None of this was meant to hurt her. It was meant to help her. And she had to sit there, and it's going to get really loud because the MRI makes this noise. And maybe they're different now, but back then, this was, this was the very beginning, and it was loud. And um, I said, I'm going to go to my, my... Lisa and I both, we both want to go. Lisa had had knee surgery from a skiing accident and had a knee full of screws and staples and all that kind of stuff, and they figured if they turned the machine on, she'd go flying up the wall or something. <laughs> so she couldn't go in, which I was glad. That meant I got to go. <laughs> but I remember those moments. My daughter didn't want to do it. She was scared. And I knew that she needed to go through this experience. She was saying, don't make me do this. And I had to say to her, no. You, 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 you have to go for this. But I'm going to be with you. Now, I couldn't go in the machine with her. At the time, a little girl in a big machine, and they shoved her way in because her head was where they were doing the study. And, and um, I said, i got to get as close as I can. Put your chair as close here. You know metal and all that kind of stuff. And all I could do was reach my hand as far as I could go and held her ankle. I wanted to hold on to my daughter's ankle. And it was scary. And I said, you just look at me. You look into my eyes. I won't stop looking at you, and I'll be with you for this whole time. It was 45 minutes. Bang, 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 bang. Don't move, don't move. Bang, 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 bang. And it was going to be 45 minutes, brief break, then 30 more. And I held on to her. And I locked my eyes at her. And although it was loud in that room so nobody could hear me, I was saying to my daughter, I was singing to my daughter. I was saying things to her. I'm here with you. I'm not leaving you. You're going to be fine. And that entire time, I wanted her to feel my presence as much as I could humanly make her feel it because I would see her through this process. All that time holding that ankle. I love you, honey. I love you. Why those words? Well, they're appropriate. But scripture had taught me by that time that, that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. It's love that casts out all fear. Perfect love. I love you, Rachel. I am not leaving you. You're going to be fine, and I'm going to take you out of this. I'm going to take you through this. I love you. I love you. I love. And she didn't hear what I said. But she knew what I was saying. Even at six, a little girl could see in her daddy's eyes his presence. He's not going to leave me. I'll get through this fine. And that's my human being, weak sauce version of God's presence. It's, it's this, you're going to be okay because my presence will be with you. I'm going to lean in here and reach out to you. That's my grace. It's going to be enough. You'll get through this. I know you're going to have enough of what you need. And 
I could have said to them, no test. But I knew she would get through that okay and that my presence with her in that room was going to help her get through that okay. My grace is sufficient. And I think sometimes we just have to recognize that prayer isn't just getting our way. Sometimes prayer is about us surrendering our will to God's will. Staying mindful that, that God is not, he doesn't exist in order to serve us. I mean, do you own that truth? Do you really own the truth that God doesn't exist to serve you and me? You know, we're his creation. We are his children. We're here to serve him and to glorify him. I think sometimes, you know, the Western version of Christianity kind of gets that mixed up, gets it reversed, you know. And I've heard people, you know, if God doesn't do this for me, I'm out. I've heard that. And look at my smile now. Hear this with a smiling, loving heart. Who do you think you are to say that to God? I mean, when did you become your own God? We're here to serve him and to glorify him. And prayer reminds us that we're not in control and it keeps us close to the one who is, you know, pressing in. God, I'm seeking after you. I'm believing you. I'm trusting you. Even if you don't do this, God, even if you don't, I'm going to go ahead and keep trusting you. Okay. And then the third thing, if you're a note taker, um, third thing is this. Prayer isn't just asking, but it's trusting. Prayer isn't just asking for what you want, but it's trusting what God knows is going to be best. And, and please, and please hear this now. I mean, I don't, I, I, I do want to say that prayer is asking. Okay. I mean, it's absolutely and without question here. I mean, if, if you come to me and you say, hey, the doctors have said to me I've been diagnosed with cancer, what we're going to do is we are going to pray for your healing. We're going to believe and we're going to trust that God is going to squeeze that cancer down into nothing and you're going to be whole. That's what we're going to do. We're going to believe that the name of Jesus is bigger than any other name. Amen. That the name of Jesus is more powerful than any other name. And I don't care what the name is that you've heard. And we're going to believe that God heals, that he provides, that he does miracles. But don't even think for a minute that, that, that what I'm tre- teaching here is, um, well, God, I'd like you to heal me from this, but not my will, but yours. No, that is not. We're going to ask. We're going to ask and we're going to trust. We're going to ask and we're going to trust and believe. You know, James said you don't have it because you haven't asked for it. James 4, 2. So we're going to ask, we're going to believe for miracles, and we're going to see miracles. But there are also going to be sometimes. Sometimes. And God's going to say, no, not this time. It's not just only about asking God. Sometimes it's about trusting. And this is what Paul ends up doing. Some years later, he, he looks back, you know, considering this thorn, and uh, he, he's got this, somehow, over, over this, the Lord has gotten into his heart, and it's, he's got a different perspective. He's saying, you know, that thing, God, that was so hard for me, you actually used it. You actually used that thing, God. And, and then, you know, his perfect, perspective changed. Verse 9, therefore, I will, bo- I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? so that God's power may rest on me. When we recognize that that's where we need God, and then God's power is resting on us. Verse 10, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, 
And then he goes on to give examples. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He's saying, I delight in those things that I would never, ever, ever choose because then I experience the power of the presence of God in that very moment. And it's, you know, it's not the successes and the wins in my life that make me closer to God. It's, 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 I mean, it's those times when I can't do anything but depend on God. It helps me to know him in the most intimate way. And, and Paul's thinking, you know, now my ministry is more powerful, it's more effective than, than it would have been of, if he had answered my question. Instead, because when I was weak, God showed up in a way that I, I would never have seen otherwise. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, he's saying. So we say to God, what about the headaches? How do you make it? Somebody asked you that question. What about those headaches? How do you make it? I don't know. But there's God's grace here. How do you have that peace and this confidence that you're walking in when you're out looking for a job in this job environment? I, I don't know. I don't understand, but I've learned to trust in God as my provider. I've learned to trust in God as the one to make my way for me. And he continues to meet all my needs. There's something about God. Or why aren't you lonely? I mean, you seem like your circumstances, you should be lonely. I mean, you know, because God's name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And I, I just have the presence of God. I have what I need at this point in my life. God is what I need. Paul's perspective changed over time, and he's looking back. And, you know, I think we hear this phrase in our society that time heals all wounds. That sounds really good. But it's just not true. I mean, you probably know people who have been deeply wounded, and 30 years later, they're still bitter. They're still angry. They've still, you know, they're ticked off. And time didn't heal all those wounds. But time, with the presence of God, heals all wounds. It does. It's God's presence that brings that healing. And I think that over time, you know, we get to a place where we can look back and some of you, you know, you're in a place right now and you hate it. And those feelings, you know, are understandable. And I, you know, me too, there are things that go on in my life and I don't like them the way they are. And I wish God would change them. You know, because he's changed some things. I'm tapping my foot. <laughs> <laughs> and other things he just hasn't changed. That's my temperament. Forgive me, Lord, if that ever comes across as, as impertinence between me and you. I just, that's just my nervousness of being standing up in front of you people. You're scary to talk to. <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I just know that I look at these issues, the ones that are personal and private to me, and what I do believe is that over time in the presence of God that I'm going to look back at some point and say, you know, like Paul. Paul said, he kept me from being conceited. But I, I know that I look back at some of those seasons in my life and I, look, and, I, and I say, you know, in that time, Lord, you built this intimacy between you and me that wouldn't have got there any other way. Or, or you, 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 you use that situation to draw us closer together and I found out something wonderful that's given me faith my whole life. And, and if this hadn't happened, I would have never had that faith place, placed into my soul. It changes over time. I look back at those seasons, and I'll tell you, I would never, ever want to go through those things again. Ever. (laughs) 
I would never choose those things again. But I wouldn't want it erased from my past either because of all the good that I saw God do it through those seasons, doing those seasons. You know, and maybe you won't make that statement after the first week or maybe you won't even make it after the first month or maybe not even after the first year. Maybe you won't be able to make that statement for five or ten years. But with the presence and the goodness of God, the very thing that what today might be your very worst nightmare can become something that you wouldn't change because you see the way that God has used it. I don't want your face right now. And I don't want to minimize it at all. I'm, I'm not doing that. Especially because whatever you're facing right now might be more painful than anything I've ever endured. I I wouldn't minimize it. But I want to say this. No matter how bad this moment is, the goodness of God is even better over time. You can leave that up until you dismiss, until until he needs it for words. But leave that up. No matter how bad this moment is, the goodness of God is even better over time goodness of God. We keep asking. We keep believing. And not only are we going to ask, but we're going to trust because prayer isn't just about us getting our own way. It's about surrendering our will to God's will. It reminds us that we're not in control, but it puts us closer to the one who is. Prayer isn't just asking, but it's trusting. I want to pray. Now, before we close our eyes and pray, I don't need you to explain this, but I just want to say, um, I want to pray about your thorn if you have one. So if there is an issue that you have been in prayer about with the Lord for a lengthy time and you haven't seen it resolved, I want to pray about it right now. I just want you to put your hand up. Don't have to tell anybody what your thorn is. Anybody got thorns? A lot of people. Probably a lot more than that. Okay. Put your hands down. Let's close our eyes. Lord, first and foremost, I confess that you are sovereign. That God, you are love. First John tells us that, that it takes love to know you because that's what you are. If we don't love other people, then we can't know you because you're love. In First John chapter 4. So these, these perceptions somehow that you're distant, that you're punitive, that you require sacrifices, all of these things are so not true about the one who loves us. Psalm 139 says that your, your wonderful thoughts about us are so many they cannot be counted. And Lord, we've learned how to count pretty high numbers. That's impressive. But Lord, it's hard for us to keep mindful of that when our thorn makes pain. God, I just ask you to visit upon us mercy in this room. And there are people in this room that you're saying the words to them right this moment. My grace is going to be enough for this. And there are others that, Lord, this is the day of their healing. This is the day of their miracle. This is the day of your visitation into their situation. Lord, invade them, I pray. I ask God for people to walk out of this room today absolutely healed, God. I pray for people to walk out of this room absolutely encouraged. I ask for depressions to to fall away this instant in the name of Jesus. I ask God for broken relationships to be made whole by the supernatural invasion of the love of God into hearts that can be changed by the Spirit. 
I also confess, Lord, that whatever action you take in our lives is always because you love us. Because you love us. Church, keep your eyes closed. I want to talk to people in this room who've never really been in the church much, who've never really understood much about God. And here's what Scripture says about this. It says that every, every person, every human being somehow is imperfect. We all have our problems. We have sin. We call, the Bible calls it sin, but we make mistakes. We hurt people. We have selfishness. And, and the word God says that if you try to get to heaven based on how good you are, nobody can make it. It says no one. Everybody falls short. So what's God do about that? Does he send everybody away from him? No. He loves us. So he makes a plan. Scripture is very, very direct. It says he loves us so much that he sends his son Jesus to come to the earth, walk on the earth, and to pay a terrible price to pay for sin. That's the whole reason he came. Born of a virgin, walked the earth for those few years, and then paid a terrible price. Scripture says that if you believe that he came and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead, if you believe that and you confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. A confession is just simply telling somebody, I, I want Jesus to be my Savior. It's as simple as that. If you've never done that before, that's how you get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's how you are ensured that forever, eternity, you'll be in heaven and not in hell. I want to give that opportunity. If you've never made that decision and you want to get right with God, this is the moment. I'm going to pray. Eyes are closed. But I would like to pray for you specifically. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to call you up or anything. But I want to pray for you, not by name, but, but, but include you in the prayer. If you've never opened your heart and you want to do that now, look up at me. Give me a little hand wave so I just make eye contact. That's your confession. That's it. Christians, pray. Keep your eyes closed for a minute because I want to wait a minute on this. Okay, Lord. God, you're good. I confess it with my heart and with my mouth. I pray, Lord, for an invasion of our hearts this day right exactly where they need to be. Church, could you stand with us?